Hi, and welcome to And Introducing, a podcast about words, about music. I'm Chris Wade. And I'm Molly O'Brien. And introducing, or should I say, welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. It's prog rock. (laughs) Though now largely the butt of music snob jokes, for about 10 years from 1968 to 1978, progressive rock was the ascendant style of rock music winning over critics, selling out stadiums, and exploring uncharted sonic territories of popular music before succumbing to bloat, excess, and a culture that left the proggers behind. And today we'll be learning all about the rise, fall, and internal life of prog from Dave Weigel's 2018 book, The Show That Never Ends. Yes. But first, let's introduce our own guest on Loan from the Washington Post, the man that literally wrote the book. (laughs) It's Mr. Dave Weigel. Dave, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm I'm happy to talk about this. Like uh, especially, my day job is is writing about politics, as people might know. Uh, and there is a there's probably too much politics last seventy two hours. Too yeah. much. It's be, way too much. I mean, a thing I a thing I really love. Yes. Uh, for context, listeners, this will be coming out in several weeks. But this is the Tuesday after the Sunday that the report on the Mueller report came out. So uh, the r- the rapport rapport the rapport rapport yeah. is it's in the air. Uh, Tonight. Well, yes. Oh, Lord. Yes. Uh, so, I, yes, Dave, I totally understand that this might be a welcome reprieve from uh, uh, the the variety of reports that are flowing around there in D.C. It, it, it is. And although being in D.C. is strange because you're very aware that not everyone around the country is obsessed with it. Um, <laughs> and also being in D.C. is nice because just I think a week ago I saw Adrian Ballou, <laughs> who maybe we'll talk about in this podcast. Maybe, so, yeah. I'm kind of using the city to get closer to like to Prague acts and Prague concerts. <laughs> how about this, Dave? In your estimation, how comparable would you say the number of nationwide hardcore politics heads with hardcore hard prog rock fans? You know, not a lot. Uh, I've actually so I've met some musicians over 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 my coverage of this. They 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 realized, oh, you're the Dave who wrote that stuff for the Washington post. <laughs> uh, and I take advantage of that and talk to them. Cause when I was writing the book, <laughs> the skill of interviewing people about politics is actually pretty different. The skill of interviewing people about other stuff uh-huh. I found, maybe not for everybody, but uh-huh. rewiring my brain to talk about art and composition and the details of how songs are written is very different than like you know, the battery of pol- political things. You can ask somebody uh, and you, can turn a boring subject into a fun story almost uh, easier paradoxically than turning something everyone loves into something readable. <laughs> the main goal I always had is like, let me not use the phrase swirling guitars. If I can get through a couple sentences without saying swirling guitars, yeah. nice. then I've written something readable. Yes. Uh, gossamer strains of a Moog synthesizer and, you know, uh, gossamer is another one. Yeah. yeah. Gossamer lacerating, lacerating, angular, uh, angular. Yeah. yeah. All, all the all the greats are out tonight. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna just start a band and call them the Gossamer and the Lacerating. <laughs> uh, sort of proggy. W- so the first thing that we usually do in this uh, in this show is uh, you know we we introduce the topic and then we usually go around and say what our previous experiences are to this. Uh, so I guess we'll use this as a really more of a, an author interview excuse. Uh, 
Dave, what was your experience with Prague before you started this book? And like, what led you to go this deep on something that when you started this book was largely a pop cultural joke? Yeah, I, my, I should guess I should get into how old I am. So I was born <laughs> in 1981. Well, no, it's important because yeah. I've had people who, who, when I was interviewing them, they were surprised that I was, I was not middle-aged uh, ah. because this music did not get a ton of new fans after the, after the 80s. But as we were in 1981, I kind of got into music fairly late for somebody who is obsessed with it now. I Probably not till I was 13, 14 was mm-hmm. I buying records for myself or tapes at the time. Let me not, let me not pretend I had a turntable when I was 13. <laughs> uh, but buying tapes and the first music I got into that felt at all rebellious was was metal and not very rebellious metal. I'm talking about like Metallica and Megadeth and yeah. The, yeah. the the very basic stuff that you get in the suburbs. It like comes with your mortgage that you get <laughs> Metallica's black album. So I was into that and the 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 or the origin story is all online, which I, I guess I guess is the way we live now. I, I was found this music interesting, bought it, but, but was looking for other music to, to, to buy and discovered this website called Mark Prindle's record reviews still around. He hasn't updated in a few years. He's a guy who I got to meet was a very nice guy, a uh, friend of Neil Hamburger, but that's near here there. <laughs> and he reviewed these metal albums in a way that I found really funny got me, you know, wrote about some stuff that I ended up chasing chasing after, but then also was into progressive rock. And the way he described it was intriguing enough that I started to buy tapes of that, especially in as growing up in suburban Wilmington, Delaware. And there's a store that I believe has been shut down for years now because it sold so many illegal bootlegs, <laughs> uh, but had a had a ton of I guess all, Warner Brothers did this with a lot of its stuff, like tapes of albums that were not very popular anymore, so they were way discounted. Oh, yeah. And I kind of loaded up on, I think, first Yes and then Genesis in that process. And I remember the first of these albums I got was was Fragile. Again, like really b- basic stuff. I didn't right, want to right, like, right. hit on the head by an album. This, But I got Fragile. I was into Metallica. And then hearing the way that Roundabout begins, uh-huh. uh, after listening to Metallica, I was like, oh, this is where they got it. I mean, that's <laughs> oh, yeah. I've always... I've always liked in in everything I write about seeing an idea then seeing where it ripped off or inspired. Absolutely. Yeah. And so the, from there I was pretty into it and got more into it based, like everyone else who grew up in the late 90s uh, once I got to college and had good good uh, Wi-Fi now Wi-Fi jeez I'm like <laughs> anyways, once I had ethernet like plugs you put in computers that made you online you could steal things. Yes. I just I just one, download a bunch of music, and two, was living in Chicago where you could go to a record store and buy stuff that was weird and rare. So I kept getting into this, uh, and one, never never stopped finding it fascinating, never stopped liking it, and then realized, huh, no one's really written about this stuff, have they? Mm-hmm. Uh, At least not in a serious way. No, there had been some people who had written really good academic books about this, some that I cite in my own book, but not a kind of rollicking... And I'm calling my own book rollicking, but you know what I mean. Not it like it is a rollicking. Yeah, Thank it you. rollicks. Like, not a not a narrative that took this, I thought, seriously the way that hip hop and every other genre of music have been taken seriously, where there is a both a history of how the music came to be and a, and a character study 
like a red, you know, made for biopic character study of people who made it. Yeah. And I mean, to, to go further back into our mutual history and I remember that this project started as a, like a long form slate piece when we were both working at slate. Um, yeah. And so that was one of the good things about slate is that it periodically gave writers a little bit of time off to like go deep on a subject. The fresca, the fresca, um, and, and this was just when, when you, when that opportunity came up, you were, this is just like, Oh, I'll do this then. Yeah, basically. So I think Slate stopped doing this because my subject was so off my normal beat. But <laughs> the, policy, the policy used to be that at Slate once a year, you wrote a big, big, long read on something that you don't normally cover. And you took a month to report and write it. And that came out. Big form and several of these have be, I mean, uh, have become books now. I think Tim Noah's became a book, and Josh Levine's became a book. Uh, mine, I, I remember pitching it to to the editors at Slate. They were a little bit skeptical because I had not written a ton about music before, but I was so passionate about exploring this topic that I thought for at that point like ten years could be a good book by somebody. Uh, <laughs> that I did it. It did well. I think I kind of got interest in writing it as a book right after that. And, and oh, everything. Just, I, I, I really never would have written this with, if I didn't work for a place that encouraged me to just chase my fantasy and spend time reporting it. But once I started writing it, it really did vacuum up a couple years of my life. <laughs> uh, I didn't take, as some people do, a year off to just study it. I, I, would, I took a couple weeks at a time. I took a couple trips for reporting but was trying to cram this in around my reporting life during you know the beginning of the most insane time in political history. Yes. Oh my God. I, it kind of worked, but yeah, but, <laughs> I, well, I'm sure you end, you're, yeah. you ended up being glad you got it out when you did. Oh yeah. Uh, and I don't, I originally, I remember being worried that I was going to miss a moment or miss somebody or be, be, be beaten by some other book. And there was, there was a very fun book called yes is the answer. That's different. That's kind of a, series about um, a series of essays about why people love the music so much mm. uh, that, that came out. Nothing else really did. I mean, a lot of the music in the, in this that covers this space, again, I don't want to be too negative towards it, but it is stuff by and for fans right. that is just, Hey, you like this stuff. And here's, here's like the story of what was written. Now, so I'm not, I'm not going to be negative for some of it, especially there's a biography of dream theater. That is just mm. a, Nut soup to nuts, biog- like study of everything Dream Theater ever did that I like relied on for the book, <laughs> right. uh, while while like talking to people around it, and uh, so, but they all were spe- very specifically. Hey, you're a fan of this band? They're obscure, but a book exists to write about them. No, uh, so I, I I approached it more as a reporter who didn't normally cover the subject, but would like try to chase every angle. And uh, yeah, whew, it took years. <laughs> it was. I'm glad I wrote it, but uh, there were times when it was like the most fun I ever had, and times when it was uh, imposter syndrome, panic. Like, <laughs> I wrote write this book. Who am I? Well, I think. Well, I think we'll get into it a little more, and I'm sure Molly can attest to this. But I think one of the things that was most interesting about reading through this book is is kind of the reporterly energy that is brought to it, because most of the books that we read are mm. again like rock musician mem- like memoirs like the first time they've ever read it, written anything that are kind of uh written with the eye to or written with the the thing of being like here are a bunch of stories maybe it's a book you yeah know? 
Or like someone just wrote about like the culture of sleaze of I can't remember what publication it was in, but they were talking about the the Motley Crue movie, movie, which we got a review and talking about the sort of era of of rock uh, memoirship that was just basically about how many sleazy stories can you share, and so like yeah. that's just a totally different. This this has so much more. You know, I, one one thing I thought when I was reading this book is like, I think this is the first time people have talked about time signatures like <laughs> yet <laughs> in in uh, in all the music writing that I've read. Like, uh, there's been a lot of four four, but if it's four four, you don't really have to to say it's four four. And here, there's a lot of you know nine eight and uh, six five or whatever. So that was very exciting for me. Well, that was kind of it because my argument for the book when I was pitching it was one. yes, this has been written out of rock history a little bit, but to understand so much of rock history, you need to understand what people were rebelling against in the late seventies, which was this. Mm -hmm. And the other was these people had interesting, dramatic lives uh, with lots of the lots of the Motley Crue dirt stuff you need. And my favorite anecdote still being that Keith Emerson, uh, rest in peace. Yeah. uh, When he was doing just tons and tons of cocaine for the making of the works album, would get it smuggled to him in boxes that said the wor- complete works of Brahms, the complete oh, works. Oh yes, of yes. That's a very yeah, good idea. And so that's where the that's where these he got the idea to tell the album the works of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer is <laughs> just from the cocaine collection he so was building. Good. So uh, good. so stuff like that happened. Not as much as some of these things. I mean, you you did not you did not get the pure debauchery that you get in some of these books. Uh, there were burnouts in it. I mean, and and they come across in the books and people who just honestly did too much acid yes. and, it, and it, it, it cut them down later in life. And you've got you know, the story of Kevin Ayers, who was an alcoholic, um, kind of got over at the end of his life, but definitely shaved years and years off his life by, by, by alcohol abuse and yeah. made albums. Something I've learned and I never want to take any of this stuff and treat it like kitsch, but I've learned, I had always learned to appreciate the albums where things were just off and they weren't clicking uh, because the artist was too addled. And yeah. you hear some of that in some of the some of the artists, but it wasn't like a check out the hilarious time they snorted dance. Right. Yes. Um, well, let, let's do me and Molly's experience with Prague real quick. Uh, Molly, you want to go first? Yeah, I'll go first because I feel like I didn't know anything about Prague <laughs> before I read this book. And now I feel like I know lots of things or at least some things. Um, I like this was all music that kind of came to me. My my dad listened to some of this uh, when he was a young man. And then when he was a slightly yes, less young man, when he had me and my siblings. But I don't think he would. I think he was like a pro, a, a popular Prague fan. Like, I don't even think he would consider himself a Prague fan so much as just like a rock, fan. a rock fan yeah. from the, you know, mid seventies, mm-hmm. which a lot of that was this. Um, I did one of my earliest like memories period and musical memories is, uh, rocking out to fanfare for the common man, um, which was mm-hmm. off of the ELP box set return to the manticore. I Hell thought yeah. that shit slapped so hard. Oh yeah. my god! Um, but that it like does. Yeah. it really it just, does. Like, objectively does. And when I like I was at a you know I was like four or something. I didn't know what rock music was or classical music, and so I was just like, this is just like this just goes. Yeah. Um. So like I listened to Prague since I was like a baby. I just never really like understood the scene at all until I read this book. So <laughs> here I am. So my, my story is a little more, uh, I guess, I guess fraught because I mean, when I was first like getting into music myself, I like considered myself a punk and then quickly indie and college rock kid, which kind of 
definitionally uh, posits itself in opposition to this music. But even more important is that I took a class at Northwestern mm-hmm. where Dave and I both went called yeah. the history of rock music. Mm-hmm. And um, I w- wish I remember the guy who taught its name, but it's probably better. I don't, I don't because I don't want to slander him. Don't, don't add him. Yeah. Uh, but he, his claim to fame, I believe was being the off stage guitarist for Toto. Oh. Like that was his slot in the music world. Oh. And the thing about this class is that the way he taught it is that in his, from his perspective, the history of rock music was that of developing complexity in the rock music mindset. So like uh, ELP's Carnival 9 and like the more complicated Blood, Sweat, and Tears, like that was the pinnacle of rock music was the, to him. The and most complicated music was also the best music. Yeah, exactly. And that's what, in, in the way that he taught the class, that's what it was building towards. Mm. And once it moved past there, it was like, Trash. it was done <laughs> and it only got worse. Garbage. Worse and worse. And I think that that whole, and that was while I was like DJing at the the radio station, which was very into experimental music and then like really underground, like lo-fi rock music. And I think that those two, like getting more and more into that anything and then having this rock music class that very much positioned Prague as like the singular goal of rock music and everything since like 1982 has just been a betrayal of the dream of rock and roll uh-huh. uh, mm-hmm. made me even more dismissive of Prague as something that could slap own rule and yeah. not be a joke. And so I was very excited to dive back into this and kind of like go back in and recapture, like relearn to, to love Prague music, which I did l- listening to this book because so many of these songs do in fact own. No, completely. And I had a collection of songs I would play to people to convince them the music was good. <laughs> uh, really at different times. I mean, you'd know, you kind of know your friend's, biases and tastes so i remember playing some friends uh and you and i uh which is is kind of boppy and (laughs) pastoral to use another overused rock word (laughs) and then but like i i never found anyone who couldn't appreciate king crimson even when i'd I'd play it to see how much they could stand (laughs) oh but some i'd often meet people who who really came to like it uh and understand how much of how much of kind of the edge of, of have heavy metal came from that now? Because mm-hmm. uh, in the book, I get into people who cited as influences some of these bands. Uh, Tool, Tool for King Crimson being like a big and obvious one, mm-hmm. uh, but Nirvana and a bunch of these other people were would take cues or have admitted they were inspired by these groups a ton by Rush later on. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so it wasn't hard to find stuff that, that was great for people. But I wasn't that much of a of a headbanger ever. Even when I was into metal, I was much more of a of a kind of I appreciated melody and I, I liked even even like the, the lyrical themes, I liked lyrics that were not just love songs because I couldn't really identify or didn't care about that till till, you know, I was like listen, I was thirteen. So yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. more years later than I should admit. So I liked I liked that stuff, but I honestly this I've always been I found different different people even different music fans look different ways. I never was a let me go to the festivals, let me go to as many concerts possible. I go to concerts probably every two weeks or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, but I always was more of a headphones person. I just mm. grew up in the age of portable music and headphones, and this music was so rewarding in that in that mode. Much more than just listening to pop songs over and over again. Pop songs are great, but 
when I would spend the time and listen on good headphones to these these songs, I just would find new stuff to focus on. I'd you know kind of play with the headphones and listen to the bass intently, mm-hmm. listen to the keyboard section intently, and just came to appreciate the way these things were composed in a way I don't think I had done with any other kind of music. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's always new stuff to discover. And the songs are just so long. <laughs> yeah. There's just so much, there's just so much song in there's these. There's so many nook and, nooks and crannies and all these. Well, then Molly, let's it's like go. A, it's like a good Thomas's English muffin. <laughs> yes. But the, mu- the muffin is the plane of your reality. Yeah. Yeah. Expanding on into infinite uh, voids. Voids and pleasure. craters yeah. and, and peaks. Crooks and nannies. <laughs> Uh, so let's go back to the very beginning and 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 talk about like how this kind of style of music uh, originated. Do you want to start us off, Molly? I do. Well, so the the book, your book does begin in our favorite mode, which is in media res when you're on the Prague cruise, the cruise to the edge. Yes, the cruise to the edge, which is one of at least three progressive rock cruises I'm aware of. I, I only <laughs> went on one. Of- I thought you were going to say you went on on three, and so no, I'm glad that you did it. <laughs> Although. I, that, that would have be been fun. cool. Yeah. That would have been cool as hell. No, I went on this one in part because I just, I I, I was at a Yes concert. So Yes, especially late stage Yes are kind of controversial with, with real heads because uh-huh. some of these bands, King Crimson being the, the best example, wanted to keep innovating. And some of these bands like Rush didn't innovate so much, but like really kept making new material and putting their hearts into it. Mm-hmm. Whereas Yes, you know, they haven't, they, they part of John Anderson, they're doing kind of, Let's play the entirety of albums on tour. Not not doing anything super new. So I remember going to what was called the Yestival, which was a yeah. day long concert that ended with Yes uh, in Philly, 2012. It must have been. Maybe it was. Maybe it was 13. And there, this being advertised and me talking myself into it, uh, <laughs> and it was actually a ton of fun. I mean, to the extent where I would not rule out going on another, another type of cruise. I yeah. need some entertainment. I think I'd die of boarding just like a normal cruise. Yeah. But had this experience where I'm one, you know, walking around drinking watered down cocktails with musicians all day yeah. Two, going on, you know, scenic excursions. Like I, I never will forget the memory of, uh, Edgar froze from tangerine dream <laughs> wearing full scarf and hat and like looking like he dressed on stage um, trying to avoid tourist traps at the pyramids at Tulum, <laughs> just with, you know, with with an with an aide behind him, trailing this red scarf. But I had all these experiences. There's also a Moody Blues centered cruise, which is very proggy. Is it the and Moody a, Cruise? Transatlantic, which is kind of a more neo prog cruise. But I did this, <laughs> yeah. and I mean, everyone's in on it. Like I had a, actually, I remember having this is in the book, like an interview with the, the guys who planned it, and they they had invented the monsters of rock cruise, which sure. is oh, yeah. one of the first of these, Hey boomers enjoy this stuff that you used to like, but do it in like a super cozy setting. Yeah. Uh, and they realized the Prague was the next market to go, but that, but in a way that, you know, you've, you've tapped all the oil. So you have to start fracking through the hard, the hard <laughs> the natural gas. Like there was less of it to, to go after. And it was only after you'd squeeze a lot of money out of more popular music, mm. uh, which, which put, things in perspective. I mean, I didn't write it before that. I went, the book ends with what the slate series ended with, which was, um, this really great weekend long festival called near fest, mm-hmm. uh, in, in kind of a small town, Pennsylvania. Uh, then both of those, you've got mostly middle-aged people who like this music was popular, 
uh, and really are, are aware that it's not ever going to be as popular again. And then you've got some younger people who've discovered it recently, like me. Um, mm-hmm. But it's the, the the cliches are unavoidable. I mean, I, I King Crimson when they reunited in 2016-17 when I when I saw them, uh, they the crowd was about 90% male. When I saw Todd Rungworth Utopia, crowds, you know, 80% male. Yeah. So this was, I, I remember so the hardest questions I got uh, when I was on tour for the book were about like the whiteness of the music. And I couldn't, I couldn't pretend it wasn't mostly older and white fandom. Yeah. Um, which is limiting. I mean, cause I, I, for me, progressive rock is a gateway to a lot of music. I didn't like when I was a kid, like, uh, like fusion and jazz. And, uh, there, you notice when you listen to music produced by people who come out of like black rock and jazz traditions, uh, how much more of, how much more of a groove is in it, right. yes. for lack of a better word. Like the whiteness of progressive rock, it was interesting to write about. Um, but then sometimes when people would ask me what it was missing, I couldn't not know. It's like this is people who picked up, and especially when you get to some of the other European traditions, like the Italian Prague and the, Ger- the German Prague, uh, it is people wiring their own folk music traditions which have none of the the black american experience into this it sounds very different yeah uh, yeah i think there's like one line in the book it might have been when you're talking about one of the italian bands or maybe magma or something where you oh, yeah. de- describe one of the uh the songs that they make as like you build up all the elements that it has like a you know like maybe a wah guitar and a backbeat and then describe it as something approaching funk yeah which is like such funk, a, funk adjacent which is like and I totally understood what you were evoking which is that it like built all the separate elements that a quote funk song would have but it yet came from no impulse that was funk you know? it, it's not funky and it yes. will never be funky but it has like, yeah. but it but it has the shape of a funk song no, absolutely. And Magma, especially, and also uh, Gong, which was a project of David Allen, yeah. uh, who, uh, another man, a lot of the people passed away, frankly, when I was finishing the book. He, yeah. he had cancer, died pretty pretty old. Um, but and he was one of the real kind of early guys, right? Like, he was little, kicking around in, like, the classic 50s and hippie. stuff. Oh, he was an Australian who, who like, uh, stowed away on a ship to get to the UK and was literally, um, was a founder of the soft machine, but had to leave the band because uh, of drug charges. Uh, so literally they had to, the band broke up with him because he could not join, rejoin the, them in England. And he had to just, his response naturally was to start a new band in France. Yes. But yeah, the, without him having, having those functions, a lot of this, I mean, everybody borrows influences. It was harder then because it was all word of mouth and record shops and festivals. Mm-hmm. Now it's, huh, I heard this is interesting. I just, I'm going to stream it. Uh, but David Allen, um, especially when he started to staff up the new gong in the late seventies with people like Steve Hillage had this, uh, this really exciting kind of ex- very French jazz sound that, <laughs> that is missing some of those influences. Uh, but same thing you, you get a little in England around the same time. Um, the rock in opposition, which is one of my favorite terms in the book. They didn't realize until I was writing it. <laughs> Bands like Henry Cow, uh, they, assemble music in such a strange way that that nothing sounded like uh, Jade Warrior who are briefly in the band who were a British rock combo that were the revelation is what if we use a lots of eastern instruments uh, Griffin who opened for Yes I Found a lot which is one of the only combinations I can imagine them working with because I, I read <laughs> a little bit like General Giant opening for Black Sabbath not working 
Griffin just using Renaissance instruments and Renaissance songwriting styles um, in the 70s <laughs> like the, yeah. and finding audience for that I, f- I found to be f- fascinating. And also the stuff that they were competing with, the stuff they were evolving from, in the U- in, especially in the UK, was not very inventive. It was just, you know, hey, we've got some riffs and we've got there was garage rock that didn't that kind of was a dead end. And there was a, a wave of British folk that was interesting, but mm-hmm. not really innovating. Uh, so this stuff was. Even though it, you go back and you say, oh, it's missing some elements, it, it was such a step forward from the Russian music at that time. You definitely understand how much critics in, in looking at this stuff thought new worlds are being invented by these musicians. Yeah. Yeah, because it kind of seems like the real like thing about how Prague started and progressed is that it's like rock music kind of gets started in America mm-hmm. and then goes over to England. Mm-hmm. And then there's a version of rock music that comes back to Eng- to America that's like British Invasion and that yeah. like continues yeah. the mainstream. And then there's the rock music that stayed in England and that became prog rock, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Does there, that make sense? There, yeah. It seems like there's there's British musicians who are like, oh, we want to make like basically black music. And then there's British musicians who are like, we can't do that. Yes. And so we shall yes. not. And we will instead draw on a rich tradition of European classical <laughs> music, music instead, yes. yeah, which I, I kind mean, of love. Like, I just feel like we're in such an age of uh, easy appropriation. Yeah, yeah. And this is such the opposite of that. It is being like, no, 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 not my not my uh, wheelhouse at all. I mean, I see what you're doing here with uh, these blues musicians, but uh, I have Brahms. And so I will use use him. Yeah. I can't syncopate for shit. So, yeah, uh, yeah give me my Muskorsky. <laughs> no, completely. And, and and the guys in ELP and Genesis were pretty explicit about that. Like, they, yeah. uh, I think the, where I got tripped up on the tour sometimes is it, it sounds weird to say yeah. these guys were going to European traditions because they're, that's fraught with politics in the year 2017 sure. and sure. 1819. Yeah, yeah. But they, that wasn't what they meant. It just was, hey, to be, in order to be original, we can continue trying to sound like Muddy Waters, like Led Zeppelin did, yeah. or we can go to like the English church music tradition, which actually informs a lot of really fascinating stuff, just in, in kind of the big block chords that Rick Wakeman uses, uh, or this the way that Tony Banks would structure songs, just the the quotes of classical music that they put that Procol Harum kind of started off putting mm-hmm. things. Then after afterwards, a lot of people were just quoting really melodic classical music in rock songs. Um, that was them going back to their tradition. That's why I kind of I spent a little bit of time in the beginning of the book talking about um, you know, Franz Liszt and, yeah. and kind of the the, the popular era maybe. Of, of classical. Yeah, where they went back to a tradition that was, which again they res- Listomania the movie, which is kind of watchable. The Ken Russell movie from the seventies. I mean, it does the tradition. way that you describe it in this. It does sound like the ultimate prog rock movie. It kind of is, but they, they realized they had a tradition of excess and pomp and melody that was independent from what was happening in America. And they tapped it. Uh, again, I was kind of, I was referring to before to the Italians and, and, the, and the, the French and the, and the Germans, but the Swedes and the Greeks, like all these people kind of did that. They found this folk music that no one had interpolated into rock. And I, I that stuff, not all of it works um, sometimes, but it, you, when it doesn't work, it's usually because they try to make it, they kind of flatten it out too much. The, the weirder this stuff gets, uh, mm. especially the, the more that, you know, pictures and ex- exhibitions, a great example, the more that, that King Crimson, uh, sorry, that, uh, ELP lean in to the classical inspiration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and frankly, you know, the, when Keith Emerson was, was experimenting a little bit more with the nice, the nice had some, some psychedelic pop songs. 
but when he would play, when he would uh, cover, when they would cover Rondo, when they would cover, a, you know, a, a Leonard Bernstein song, uh, the way they play, the way that they mo- move that music around, I thought was that was that was new. They actually took two elements, made something new. Same thing when King Crimson are covering, uh, well, Bolero, they kind of rewrite their own version of. But one of their first, the first songs they were playing for people was was the was the uh, you know one of the mo- more obvious classical pieces in retrospect, but Whole Smars. Um, you had a rock band of you know nineteen year olds by, <laughs> uh, discuss- writing a rock version of this of this Gustav Holst music. Yeah, and it kind it kind of rules. <laughs> like it, but they figured that out before other people did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, do we want to go into a little like some of the the chronological history of this, Molly? Yeah, we could. Yeah, we. I mean, we can also jump around, but I, I would like to talk a little bit about some of the like early days of like what separated the psychedelic movement into the uh, the prog movement. Sure. I mean, the, the you know we already talked about the the kind of classical bit, um, but I also think the the development of like synths and like the mellotron also yes. made this sound different than just a regular yeah. regular string orchestra. And Chris, I know, I know you love synths. Yeah. So I, I think do. that was the other piece of it of like, it's not just psychedelic rock uh, played with, you know, a guitar and a bass and a drum set. There's uh, like the progress psychedelic versus progressive. I feel like is a lot of has to do with, whatever kind of instruments were being innovated on. Yeah. And or, you know, uh, Keith Emerson, like destroying his organs, his, his Hammond yes. organs and uh, destroying himself when playing it. Yeah. Uh, I'll, and I'll drop some, some uh, music from the Mellotron in here, but it is, it is interesting that it, uh, it's like as much of a technological yeah. uh, movement as, or how married the tech is to the, the development of the sound, you know? Uh, no, that's that's a great point. Uh, the, so the technology that comes out when these bands are forming in the, in the late '60s really does in, uh, really does shape the sound. King Crimson acquire there, there seem to be like two Mellotrons at all. Of London yeah. this year. King Crimson will acquire one that uh, that had been kicking around with other bands, uh, and their 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 realization is that the Mellotrons, which is, which is a fascinating little machine. I mean, it has it's just a it, it is built like a piano, but uh, the keys play little sound loops. Yes. And you can kind of make anything, but it's very rudimentary synthesizer. Um, so the Beatles and other bands use the Mellotron to make kind of fairly uplifting sounds. Mm. Uh, King Crimson's Revelations, you can make it sound terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's difference in how you play. Just making, just emphasizing emphasizing minor minor chords, but they uh, go, you know, if you listen to Strawberry Fields Forever, and then you listen to Starless. Mm-hmm. Uh, similar instruments, and one of them is trying to you know, uh, summon demons, by the way they play it. <laughs> uh, at the same time, so r- the Mellotron is kicking around, and the, the, the this is the birth of, of actual synthesizers, too, with the Moog synthesizer coming yeah. in. Again, uh, when Keith Emerson is playing this with Emerson, Lincoln Palmer, he is I think the first rock was there's probably maybe somebody who's going to claim the credit, uh, like the way the Vikings claim they have, have gone Down to America. America first. Yeah. <laughs> but really is the first person to play this. And the first stuff he does with it is kind of just noodly sounds that sound that are kind of melodic. Uh, but he always you were talking about him attacking his organ. I mean, he used the Hammond organ on stage like a lot of bands did in the 60s. The, the Hammond organ is kind of a, a standard a side piece for, yeah. the, for these groups. Um his animation was like 
throwing it around on stage, sticking knives in the keyboard. Yeah. Uh, when he gets this is a synthesizer, it's 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 not the kind of machine you can mess around with quite as much. Yeah, yeah it'll, it'll destroy but it. Climb, it, he, it makes it both. He creates sounds that are inconsistent and new from show to show, uh, and then also just the the act of watching this guy mess with the machine live on stage, especially Emerson Lincoln Palmer, uh, when they really incorporate the, the synthesizer into their act, the song Hoedown, which on the record has a kind of pretty simple, replicatable melodic intro, um, he, he just goes wild with that thing. Yeah. And that was new. I mean, as, as I was writing the book, I, I, I'm always interested in who did this first. Electronic music, which is, I mean, basically, to the extent rock is still popular, it's just that stuff. Right. Yes. These guys, I, these guys really do invent it. Um, yeah, and not, I mean, yeah, you know, the dance music stuff couldn't have couldn't have happened in the '70s without this. But the guy, the first guys playing with the technology were, were the progressive rock artists. Yeah, and that always interests me about like playing synthesizers as a, uh, you know, a, a rock playing is that it's not just the notes that you're that you're manipulating live; it's the tone and pitch and shift and uh, mm-hmm. total overall sound of it that you can kind of loop and feed back into itself as a live performance into itself so that the shape of the mu- the sound is as important as the notes that you're playing. Mm-hmm. And like that is, I mean, it, it, the way that, um, and the, it, it's kind of fascinating because it seems like as soon as Emerson gets his hand on one of these things, he's like, oh, obviously this is how it, this is how it should be used. It's yeah. not just like, oh, I'm going to design a sound and like, that'll be my preset and leave it there. It's yeah. like, no, the whole thing is the instrument, not just the yes. finding a note and then playing the note, you know? Yeah. White, white improv. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, kind of. F- fooling around with the, the tech of it. They also made a big deal when they, so you mentioned in the book, uh, Dave, they played the Isle of Wight in 1970 and like the review, one of the reviews of the show was like, uh, Emerson controlled his 3,000 pound, that's uh, money, not weight, 3,000 pound <laughs> yeah. worth of Moog synthesizer with cunning skill and produced effective, if expensive, bleeps. <laughs> and now I feel like, you know, expensive bleeps is the entire landscape yeah. of pop music. Yes, exactly. There's a there's a, uh, a New York Times exp- like a explainer video with um, Justin Bieber, Diplo, and Skrillex talking about how they came up with that song. Was the, oh, what, what do you mean? The mm-hmm. and um, uh, Justin Bieber was praising Skrillex and he's like Skrillex can come up with beats that are really expensive sounding <laughs> like the sounds are just really expensive and I was like they're not as expensive as what <laughs> Keith Emerson was making in the 3,000 pound the exchange unit. rate is never is never going to compare right um, shout, shout out to gigantic uh, Synth gigantic sense. yeah hell yeah I mean, luckily, the internet exists, and I was able to kind of calculate uh, exchange rates, if, at least if the internet is correct. And that's something. But uh, yeah. sidebar, like, probably the most fun I had in writing the book was honestly going through the entirety of British rock journalism from this period. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, there are lots of good uh, good quotes and bits from all the, the little British rock mags uh, litter, littered throughout this. And uh, British rock journalism... Uh, very thorough, very catty. But they had to write so much of it. Yes. <laughs> like, imagine if America had had, like, weekly or, like, more than we or multiple weekly yeah. uh, music magazines. Holy shit. People would have been dying to figure out how, yeah, to, yeah. how to write up stuff. Yeah, just, like, endless endless interviews and Melody Maker of Robert Fripp being like, well, I didn't think this week went quite as well as last <laughs> week, but hopefully <laughs> next week will be better. No, 
I mean, there wasn't really any way for these guys to communicate. And not to get into a, like a soliloquy about how everyone just like tweet and shape their image, et cetera, yeah, et cetera. Sure. They can. But there's this period where just it feels like these bands that would eventually sell millions of records are just hanging out with the journalists every week and letting them on the bus. And it's like going through the latest uh, stuff on the albums. And there's like a camaraderie that they had missed. But there's also because they're British writers, just this endless amount of snark and uh, mockery that I also thought was amazing. Yes. Um, It's very good. So these, this like core of, bands the like Procol Harems and Soft Machine kind of and then onto King Crimson kind of develop in London in the late 60s and 70s yes. and then very quickly quickly they like kind of congeal they break up and recongeal into a few superstar bands and that is like the early 70s era of like El- Emerson Lake of Palmer early yes, yes uh, King Genesis, Cr- Genesis King and King Crimson yeah and, and Jethro Tull a little bit later too. Yeah, but. briefly Jethro Tull. Yeah, who are my favorites. They're they're my uh, my beloved band yeah. of this era. Um, but so it kind of moves from this psychedelic and garage rock sp- scene that spawned in the late '60s. Some of the bands that would either break up, like the Beatles, or the early of the '70s, or become yeah. like the monsters of '70s rock, like Led Zeppelin, The Who, and um, Rolling Stones, but also this wave of abstru- absolutely monstrously popular prog rock bands yes. in the early 70s. And c- could you kind of speak a little bit, Dave, to just how popular this music was in like the early 70s? Because I think that that was one of the th- most interesting things that I got from reading this. Oh, yeah. So I, I think I was trying to excavate because I, I mentioned how these guys are not a history mm-hmm. uh, is just the, they were among the first big arena bands. Uh, so we, we have like the, the evidence of Led Zeppelin being a giant arena band is still with us. And the Rolling Stones are is still with us. Um, but uh, ELP was an enormous draw that would sell out nights at Madison square garden mm-hmm. that would, uh, headline a festival and get, you know, hundreds of thousands of people at the festival. Uh, Yes, the same thing. These were all gigantic arena bands, and because the sound was so so demanding, because the, the the music was inventive and weird and complex, they also, I mean, some technology is, is developed to get this music out, out to people uh, almost before them. I mean, so if you if you're a Grateful Dead fan, I think you're like aware of the way they built just speakers on top of speakers to get the sound blasted out. Okay. Uh, these bands are some of the first ones where you have quadraphonic sounds, so that you were it would see but actually is kind of new you're in an arena and stuff is coming in front and in back of you uh fairly th- that's new and the first yeah. time you're, you're hearing it is for elp playing tarkas and fan for the common man and those sorts, sorts of things they, they get more intense over time and there there are a few kind of spinal tap moments in the book literal spinal tap moments there are people who uh, work with some of these bands who then are consultants on Spinal <laughs> Tap in the '80s. But I think one of my favorite favorite uh, ones of that were Yes, the Rick Wakeman era of Yes has a lot of good Spinal Tap moments in it. Mm. Yes, completely. Uh, when they're recording their album, their second album with Rick, and they decide that they need the recording studio to look like a barn to get that pastoral sound. Yes, <laughs> that one's really good. And like literally he's setting up his keyboards on a hay bale that they brought into the recording studio and the drums are behind a white picket fence. They have a cutout of a cow, yeah. <laughs> uh, not a real cow. But they do have a cutout. There's that. I mean, there, there's I, I spent a little time with Mike Oldfield, mm-hmm. um, who I like. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The author of um, 
of Tubular Bells. I like him in part because that is such a a uh, like what alien created this beautiful music uh, <laughs> yeah. this album. And the guy was just like he just was like just pounding Guinness out of like champagne magnums. <laughs> yes, and just like any order sort of like when you picture the uh, VH1 behind the music of a hair metal band writing it like that like right but writing 40 minute songs song suites that he then had to play live right. somehow and he he didn't he didn't pull off but you had people going after these ambitious acrobatic uh, uh, acts and then it got a little more self-parodying in the, in the end of the 70s I and mean, I don't really quibble with the timeline mm-hmm. which is this music peaks in the mid 70s and then everyone wants to go away in 77 mm-hmm. that's not wrong I mean 77 is the year of punk and it's also the year that Emerson Lincoln Palmer go on tour with an entire orchestra, orchestra yes <laughs> yes <laughs> which uh, which rules I mean if you listen to music from from that period it's it's insane it's also something else that gets ripped off like 25 years later, people dust it off and say, what if we play Metallica with this? Yes. Yeah. We, I believe Kiss did, too, which is kind of bullshit. Oh, dude, yeah. There's nothing in I that music. I have opinions about Kiss that, that are not really worth getting into here. But. I mean, there's not nothing really in Kiss music that demands an orchestra. Whether or not yeah. you like Kiss, I think most people, even who love Kiss, could say that. Yeah. That seems fair. But yeah, mm-hmm. th- but this is invented for Emerson Lincoln Palmer. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or before that, not touring with the orchestra, but Mahavishu Orchestra. Uh, which are not an actual orchestra; they're just like a fusion combo. Also, make an album with an orchestra because why not? Why not? Uh, like, and so that level of pop—that I mean, is what is rebelled against in 1977. That and a bunch of other kind of bad trends in rock music: singer songwriters, uh, disco, famously. But, yeah. but mm-hmm. this sort of to do rock properly, you need to have an arena and an orchestra. That is definitely an attitude that gets uh, that gets burned up and. I don't know, just it was fun to me to cover that side of it, you know, like being in like the wrong bunker. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that was interesting, especially during the reading about the uh, ELP orchestra tour was it seemed like the ELP guys themselves had kind of a death drive about that. Like they would yeah. say, like, it doesn't matter if this makes money. We don't even care. We'll lose our house and homes. We're doing this orchestra tour. Like they kind of n- knew it was a bad Which idea. we've heard before in memoirs, like, um, uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire had the same attitude where they were like, and specifically Maurice White was like, yeah, fuck it. Like, I want magicians. I want like David <laughs> Copperfield on stage. I want the best sound system ever, which we are going to buy ourselves and we're going to drive it around in our own trucks. I think they bought their own trucks. Yeah, did they try to start as like a shipping company? Kind of. Yes. So like, yeah, this, yes. this whole attitude of just like, uh, Fuck it, fuck it, mask off. Yeah, we're we, we're going all in, baby. Yeah, for yeah. you, no, excess rules. Excess yeah. is yeah. fucking great. Everyone <laughs> loves it. I mean, I I like recent recently uh, recently like uh, last year saw Drake on his tour. Like not like the biggest Drake fan. Yeah, but he had this. Um, he ha- he has this setup where he plays in arenas. He uses like the sports, the stuff you have for games when they when they score, I'm, I'm told it's a sports work, uh, <laughs> like where fireworks go off and light bulbs explode and stuff. But Great. then he had a uh, stage below him. That was a bunch of, of screens that could do anything. Yeah. Like him running around, making it look like he was walking over rocks that were moving stuff like that. I, I, I like, I like excess and pomp. Kanye, obviously who has covered actually inter- in, in, interpreted a lot of progressive rock in his music yes. uh, from yes to, uh, Mike Oldfield to to King Crimson, him him too. 
But so this these guys had to do it first with, you know, way dinkier technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. And <laughs> people like Funkadelic uh, do, I think, in many ways, more exciting versions of this a bit later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, th- this is what does it first. Yeah. And, and it's because a people are spending people are spending money on records, yes, which is yes. crazy. And then b record companies are investing in these bands. Yeah, and, and go, that dries up too eventually. And, and to go back to a figure like Mike Oldfield, who seemed like of the people that you wrote about in this book, kind of the the one person who's like maybe buoyed by a prog bubble, like because he's so specific and mm. he doesn't want to play his music live, and it's just one guy like kind of making these fantastic. Sweets and the record companies gambled on him and won with tubular bells. But like after that, he's just like, oh, well, maybe another 40 minute pastoral suite of like very specifically arranged rock music that I won't pay live. That there is regardless, like it's 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 a trend in a movement that is booing up some vaguely eccentric characters within it, even if that sometimes pays out, you know? Mm -hmm. No, totally. And I, I came up with theories from talking to people Especially, you know, I met some really interesting former managers and former roadies and stuff, and uh, no one could quite figure out. But just it, logically, there were fewer distractions in the '70s than sure. there would be, even at the end of the '70s. I mean, there yeah. there is a sense among people that um, the arrival of arcades <laughs> and video games. <laughs> <hurts> <laughs> people. No, really. Oh yeah. I mean, it's but like, yeah, it's what? the same. I'm laughing because it's the same doom saying about. Uh, you know how video games are destroying the, the the consciousness and the attention span of the youth for like forty five years now. So yeah, no, completely. But so they have the same complaint everyone else has. I mean, I'm sure like people at studios are worried about Twitch, the same thing. But it's not wrong that you start like splitting up people's entertainment dollars. Yeah, uh, yes. for stuff. Yes. Uh, and I mean, one of your best expressions of just how. Yeah that I saw that also because I'm a Jethro Tull fan that I saw in this was just uh, how you described uh, Jethro Tull's height of their popularity. Uh, Think of a, thick as a brick, a 43 minute song cycle based on a non-existent poem and written to be performed in its entirety went straight to number one in the U S and stayed there for two weeks, dislodged only by the arrival of a new Rolling Stones record. And like, thick as a brick is great, but it is also impossible to listen to even if you're like a fan of it. Like, I'm going to try to put, I'll, I'll try to, in post, put in a clip of it, but there's no clip of it that I can put in that does it justice. You got to listen to it in its entirety. 43 minutes of music to It'd get it. It would be disrespectful to And it to was at number one in the U.S. for two weeks. That's insane. That. Yeah, there just was this willingness to, to get into the experience of the LP with the ornate art. Uh, I mean, Roger Dean being one of them I talked to. Yeah. Just that you're buying this experience experience that like you know frankly unless there's like an apocalypse and we you know lose the internet or be fun uh (laughs) you're never gonna you're never gonna get that again where just there is a and i'm probably as old as you as 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 young as you can be and remember this just remember oh i want to hear what that album sounds like yeah but i I did the age of, of, of of cruddy cds and of you know being able to steal things on the internet pretty quickly um there is a culture a a a a shared culture that like you just can't create again without scarcity and the need to find a community uh, without the need to wait in line for a concert. And, and I'm not, I'm not even being nostalgic and saying that was the right way to do it. I'm not sure, I'm not sure <laughs> that it was, but a lot of this stuff is built up because that had that culture, that culture as a foundation. Yes. And it also seems like, you know, rock and roll is still pretty, pretty new at this time. And it's also like a little bit of, let's see how far this can go. 
Yeah. Know? Yeah. No, I think I think so. I think so. And that was the attitude I wanted to get in get in there. So I, I think I think I kind of pulled it off. <laughs> like, yeah. No. But it, it, I just to convey that there in every era there are like teenagers who make stuff. Uh, and they try to be revolutionary, and this was extremely revolutionary in the same way that all the other things we agree are changing everything. Uh, so that I, I, I tried to put that across, just how insane was it that men this young <laughs> yes. were being this ambitious. Yes. Also, you had, like, I mean, we can talk about, like, the signifiers of maybe the the more outlandish aesthetic mm. aspects of prog rock of like yeah, yeah. you got Peter Gabriel and Genesis wearing like costumes and doing these like spoken word bits between songs and like of course all of these ridiculous time signatures uh the 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 meta text being like ancient sh- not ancient shit but sometimes ancient shit but you know uh Rick Wakeman doing the solo album that's about the the six wives of Henry the yes. and then doing like a King Arthur suite that is performed live with actors like yes. acting things out like just stuff that it's like excess but it's like in- intellectual-ish excess like it's always based on some you know the English major in me is like oh yeah that makes sense like that's a that's a solid reference King Arthur right yeah that they're always kind of like maybe thinking at one level too high than you would think that you need to to make rock music you yeah, know it's good oh yeah no completely although that's a good way to bring up the the best thing about the Rick Wakeman series of concept albums yes. is how um, the King Arthur show was supposed to be performed as a as a live you know dance ballet thing and the 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 arena he booked it for had uh had ice had an ice show before and they couldn't clean up the ice fast enough (laughs) he just turned it into a skating (laughs) he just turned into a king arthur on ice program because yeah with the 70s screw it why not (laughs) (laughs) um we can we talk about to me the most interesting character in this book is Robert Fripp. I feel like we need to talk about him a little specifically just because he's so idiosyncratic and kind of even amongst all these people who are pushing the boundaries, he's like, he's so far beyond that. Like he's kind of in outer space a little bit. And I was, I, I kind of loved him even though he seems hard to hang out with. (laughs) Let's talk about Fripp. I mean, we have some notes about Fripp's career, but Dave, do you, can you kind of walk us through his whole whole thing? Your own personal Frippertronics, please. Yeah, so well, Robert Fripp is a uh, from the south of England. Has like a, a one of my favorite accents on the planet for this reason. I mean, just the south coast of England people have a very light, airy accent uh-huh. that is as distance you can get from the Cockney or the northern uh, northern. He uh, is one of these guitarists. There's there's some that you know just feel like super natural. Yeah, uh, yeah. Who can play anything? He never felt like he was like that. He is you know, like a a bit like Frank Zappa in that he just feels he needs to drill himself. Um, but he uh, plays in the, he plays in a couple combos. He gets his first deal with this band, the Giles, Giles and Fripp that becomes King Crimson. And then for the rest of his life, really, he is in versions. He does some side projects. He does some collaborations, but he's in versions of King Crimson. Um, he is the creative force. There is no King Crimson tour or album without him. And it's actually fairly impressive uh, that, uh, there are people who lose, you know, lose the, the names and rights to their their stuff all yes. the time. And he had he has had long fights that cost him lots of money to make sure he did he didn't. Yeah. So he, uh, but never now, quit 
the band. Never quit the band. Never quit the band. Also, the, the the current iteration I realized of Yes is called officially Yes featuring John Anderson, Trevor Rabin, Wick, Rick Wakeman. <laughs> so that's what happens when you don't you don't hold on to your name. Not to detail too far, but I think Dave, you'll appreciate this. As Molly was reading this book for research, research she was like, "Here's the thing." Everybody is constantly quitting and rejoining their band, and it's frankly making it impossible to track. And it, oh my god, it's my kryptonite. Reading all these memoirs is like when there are lineup changes, my brain kind of turns into like static a little bit, and I was like, oh my god, that's all the history of Frog is. <laughs> it's just yeah. people being in different bands with each other. Um, no, so shout out to Robert Fripp for holding on to King Crimson because not- it was easy for me. Oh yeah, that, I mean he he hangs on to it. He basically keeps bringing it up whenever he gets bored with it. Yes. Uh, if I can simplify things, so uh, there is no version of, of King Crimson that lasts more than an, an album until about fifteen years into their existence. Uh, <laughs> when he so he, he, short short version of this, I think it's interesting. To me band forms nineteen sixty nine. They keep losing members. They keep getting new singers and new new guitars. They get you know there are uh, my they, fa- my favorite leaving was uh, Gordon Haskell. Uh, complaining that it that Fripp was too interview it, innovative and saying that they shouldn't have used drums, they should have used my dick. Yeah, he's probably not right about that. Uh, <laughs> that the album, this, he was not. No one can figure out why he's part of that. And he's definitely kind of out of the uh, the King Crimson family after this. I mean, but, yeah, as long it, as we're talking, because I just have a few quotes of this. Uh, to to his credit, Fripp then said that uh, that uh, Haskell was struggling heroically to be a singer in a context in which the endeavor is functionally impossible. Which I thought was a a good quote that you had in here. He might have been my favorite person to talk to, even though he he I ended the conversation feeling a little bit a little bit dirty because he blames lots of his problems on the Jews. Oh, oh yes. God! Uh, oh my God! Yeah. Well, well, just because uh, just because I know that there are some Chapo fans that listen to this show, and this is a, a a sentence that would hit so many Chapo bells. He describes King Crimson as quote. Musical fascism, designed by fascists to dehumanize and strip meaning of the dignity of the soul. It's pure Tavistock Institute material financed by Rothschild Zionists and promoted by two pony public school boys with connections to the city of London. Which is like so many uh, Infowars triple parentheses like proto- indicators in the 60s yes <laughs> yeah he's, he's I mean, like it takes yeah to live through this period and be that that broken yes. <laughs> about yeah. his politics is pretty impressive yeah uh so yeah for moves on from the uh, or moves into the 70s in king crimson mm-hmm. yeah so he he does that and uh breaks the band up in 1974 kind of goes and joins this uh society that that is not a cult but is kind of a uh a a a way to learn true discipline through self-sacrifice. An austerity uh, collective. Austerity collective is a good way to put it. Then <laughs> uh, he returns to music by being by moving to New York, becoming a a kind of sideman for different. Art, actually, sort of a collection of artists who also are ditching everything they used to do, like Peter Gabriel, mm-hmm. uh, like David Bowie. Yeah. Um, he then reforms King Crimson in 1981. Not really intending to. He wanted to start a new band, but like the one concession he starts making to commerce is that the King Crimson name does way better than here's a new band no one's heard of. Yeah. Um, that is for a lot of people, I think most of the time for me, the the best version of this band, which sounds nothing like the, the 70s band, uh, which is him, Adrian Ballou, uh, Tony Levin, and uh, Bill Bruford yeah. all mm-hmm. like at the top of their at the top of their game making it just unclassifiable mel- melodic yet of, impu- of influences, yet people with extremely different musical 
theories in the same band. Mm-hmm. Then they break up. I mean, it's um, not often you get a band lineup with two outstanding like guitar savants like Blue yes. and Fripp working together for a, sh- a shared goal. Like th- those yeah, guys are, very are both like top of class guys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Top of class guys who then interlock really well. Then they break up again. Uh, he reforms them. Uh, about a decade later with what he calls the double trio, uh, <laughs> which is, you know, the two guitarists, two two drummers, two bassists. Uh, they kind of lose members. They break up again. And then the current version of King Crimson uh, is him, a guitarist singer, a uh, Tony Levin back on bass, uh, a woodwind, and then... Why not? Three drummers. And if you, if you see them live, there are three drummers in the front of the stage, and they actually... Do like re- so. It's the the only thing that's, that King Crimson under this guy who has led the band for fifty years is the the only one of these bands that just keeps reformulating and getting destroying what they did before. Yeah. Um. Because he and, and that attitude is it really hard to maintain, especially if you want to like make a living at this. It's yes. not, it, can, it cannot be easy to. Uh, it, you, you're not guaranteed a consistent fan base. You're not playing your greatest hit. So they do play songs people know, but the the fan sounds different each time. Yeah. Oh my God. The, I, I just really enjoyed, I enjoyed the, his, um, first of all, uh, Fripp's kind of dismissal of bands, uh, where he's just like, I, you know, bands, needs bands are inefficient. I prefer a small, self-sufficient, mobile, intelligent unit. Yes. And I'm yes. like, yeah, it, I think Dave, you said this too. It's like, yeah, like, like a band, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like a, like a small band. Um, I like, I, I loved his, his, uh, cause there, I think there's another quote from him where he's talking about like the ideal number of people in a band is 15 because then you could just play whatever, <laughs> like you, you could play whatever you wanted. I've um, actually, I've actually thought about this in the context. I like, this is a quite a, a tangent, but I used to think about this in the, like the minimum number of people you would need in a band to be a live a live girl talk cover band. Yes. And I think that I used to come in around the number of 15 15 or so. Yeah. To just cover the kind of Sonic's like landscape that he produces. Yes. Well, so I think that uh, you're on the same page as as Fripp. Fripp. So the ideal brand band is either 15 people or one person. Yes. I just, the, the other Fripp stuff I love was like his, his Frippertronics where he's, uh, kind of playing these sort of weird noodly things in, in like Soho in New York and then his drive to 81 which is like <laughs> I was dying when he was so he's marketing as a uh, just sort of it's in 1978 and so he's just like the next two and a half years like the way he describes it he says uh you know, the drive to 81 commits me for two and a half years to be working substantially in the marketplace in positions of public access and accessibility and I'm like Dude, what does that what does that mean? And then there's the discotronics, which is the the musical experience resulting at the interst- interstice of uh, frippertronics and disco. So he's just he's he's constantly rebranding yeah. at at a speed that most people cannot absorb or maintain. And I respect him for it. I I, I really did too. Like I really I had always liked his music, but only when digging through all of this did I fall I fall completely in love with his approach to life and music yeah um and uh he also is there's this period where he is doing a ton of of interviews he's kind of a strange elder statesman of of rock Mm -hmm. uh in the early 80s where people come to him for advice and analysis that that kind of peters out after a while but it is never 
his only mode is is kind of is like is Buddha Zen like yes uh, analysis that it, it, kind of makes it, sense. It really ping pongs back yeah. and forth from like aloof assholishness to like maybe the most like well centered person in the in the whole scene. Because like yeah. from I mean, lo- he's basically correct about everything. Like, <laughs> yeah, he, I have a scene in the book where he sees ELP on tour and like correctly surmises that they suck and gets kicked <laughs> off a limo by Greg. Yeah, Lee. yeah, yeah. But he's he's got, like got the right sense of that. This is the same time he's like, what if instead we of making everything bigger and more pompous, we boil it down to unit? And Greg Lee's like, fuck, fuck right off. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we're doing the this orchestra is the tour that destroys ELP. <sighs> whereas this is the period where Fripp is like writing the immortal i guess also is a rock cliche but the the really one of the greatest guitar parts of all time on heroes yes which he does like he knocks out a weekend yes. I mean, yeah he just walks in and is like well i guess i'll do this three times and they're like we'll put three all, all three over that and that's the guitar yes, part to exactly. hero yeah i mean he's the one person i think who, uh, some people in the book come across well some kind of burnout uh he he definitely it, it, I, I think, and, and if he had more, he has enough of it. Didn't have an ego as much as he just wants to live his his nice English life. He yes, has a yes. he's had a blog for like twenty years that is mostly a, a inscrutable diary that involves him enjoying tea in different places. Sure. Oh my god, that's what he wants. He doesn't necessarily want like the fan worship. And I remember just I in exchanging like an email with him, the way that he <laughs> writes everything is. There is no pre- there is no pretense. I mean, like I I, I switch between different modes of talking, and he sure. never does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. This is not that important for the music, but I think this has helped him. You know, fans like characters. And I mean, when yes. you see them live now, the show begins with they're one of the bands that demand you not film during the performance. <laughs> of course, of course. And it begins with this audio recording of of him saying things like, please, Viddy, with your eyes. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Where you know uh, where is the lie though? Like yeah. that's that's where it's at. Shout out to Fripp. So then moving into like kind of the end stages of this, yeah. I, I guess like as it peaked, you know, arguably with that ELP orchestra tour. I guess Dave, do you think that just the excess, the natural excess of this movement to like always more move to more complicated, bigger, more elaborate? more technology, more players. Do you think that that had a doom drive in it that was eventually going to destroy itself? Or do you think it was more of like culture passed it by? How, how did prog rock end? Uh, uh, the boring answer is always it's a combination. Yeah, but I, I, I do think, I do think it was, I think uh, there were a few economic factors that change it. Not like they're running out of money, but the record industry, uh, it's actually also kind of at the peak, peak of this point. So much of it, though, is like they make some cho- some concerted choices about what they're promoting instead of progressive rock. And you you notice this. There's mm-hmm. some some artists who were kind of welcome at left, like for it. There's some that are, remained bitter about it till the very end, like Reg Lake. But you do see record labels, and then by extension, the music press switch off progressive rock, say it's trash, and then promote um, kind of more DIY punk bands and new wave mm-hmm. bands. Which at the very beginning are cheaper to deal with. Any anything that's that is anything you're signing new is gonna be cheaper to deal with than the the cocaine addicted band that you've been on the label for six years. That's now touring <laughs> with a full orchestra. <laughs> yeah, but I, I also think we've seen cult, different cultural waves where periods of periods of um, 
of, of I guess, general recession or, or want, uh, there is a, a decline in interest in, in the mm. more outre, pompous stuff. I mean, mm. like the 80s give you hair metal, and the, uh, the early 70s before the oil crash give you the more pretentious progressive rock. And we're, you're in an era of limits in the late 70s, and I think that lets itself to some of this. But... And some of it is just the music got less good. I mean, I I I, yeah. I think there's really fantastic stuff in the late '70s, especially especially Magma and Gong. Uh, I think Rush in that period, everything that people say about them in the, in their kind of imperial era is 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 true. They're amazing, um, but a lot of the bands had just tired out. I mean, yes, do not defend Tormato. It has moments, but like the the bands are kind of. What seems now to it seems weird for me at age thirty seven to look back at men younger than that, be like, "Whoo, they really lost it." But they kinda, <laughs> no, they kind they kind of did. I mean, yeah. it's, you've seen now that I mean, rock really does feel like it reached an end stage maybe ten years ago. So we saw various bands go through versions of this, and the, there comes a point when they're just not writing new stuff anymore, unless like Fripp or not really progressive rock musician, but Scott Scott Walker who just died, mm-hmm. unless they really just take take themselves out and like rearrange their brains and write new music. They definitely just don't write as good stuff anymore. I mean, even the, I enjoy Bob Dylan, but like if people are honest, he hasn't written anything good in like 20 years or so either. Um, and so it's, it's kind of in a way I, I, after finishing the book was thought, well, it's kind of good that nostalgia hasn't just, um, hasn't made too many of these bands just re go through the same motions again and again. Some yeah. of this music is just kind of lost because it, it, it does capture a moment that's gone, which is a thing It's hard for the people who made it, but a thing that I think is much more rewarding than just uh, people trying to flog the same style without a- doing anything new. Uh, so you know, Stephen mm-hmm. Wilson, who's kind of the last musician in the book, I mean, his career starts uh, really in the 90s, um, and he, he's a young kind of DIY revivalist of progressive rock yes it was a bad porcupine tree um it just he's convinced like there just wasn't really anything new in progressive rock after the eight after the 70s mm-hmm. the last new thing he thought he had heard in rock was progressive metal which i guess in the states we call math rock and oh my I, God. I like after the interview i thought that's not really wrong i mean all even the new rock bands like, what's this greta van fleet is that band that, that yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> got like pitchfork zero the yeah. new nickelback um, yeah yeah um it definitely feels like after a point, people have nothing really new to add to this. Jazz went through the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these guys got to be part of by far the most imperial and far sighted and ambitious and occasionally stupid era, which is mm-hmm. I, that's something. Yeah, I think that is totally right. The most heartbreaking like uh, anecdote you put in this book was when, um, you know, it was maybe the fourth or fifth schism in, in yes in 1980 and they so they have this whole tour booked but they've lost uh uh Anderson and Wakeman and they are playing MSG and people are screaming for both of them at all the quiet parts <laughs> like <laughs> which I'm just like oh god how how disheartening and then they said by the time they got back to Europe 3,000 people are going to the 20,000 person venues that they've booked. I'm just like, oh, fuck. Because they, they've heard, they're like, yeah. oh, yeah, my fa- my faves have dipped. Yes. So, like, uh, yeah. I, I, I think Wakeman has is now in, yes, for a fifth, his fifth go. <laughs> um, so, shout out to him, too, because, like... <laughs> keeps, keeps coming back for another bite just, of the apple. Just they pull them out, they... 
He, he took him back in. He said, yes, yes, and. He's a yes, and guy. Yes. Uh, yes, Anderson. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, so that, that part of the book is one of, when I was trying to, like, elevator pitch to people, yeah. uh, I definitely, the thing that got them to stop and notice was, hey, did you realize there was a period when Yes lost two members, they just replaced them with the Buggles and thought yes. no one would notice? <laughs> 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 and it I, took like a blew my good mind. 30 years for people to realize actually that album's pretty good <laughs> um, no it really it is like the yes drama album they, they will play parts of it but but it is um it is strange that they would try that i mean i i cannot think of the the equivalent in again because like rock bands are basically over yeah. and i don't really care about who's in Coldplay, but it's i don't know the equivalent of like two members of Radiohead leaving and the Chainsmokers coming in to replace them. People are like, oh. <laughs> like Johnny Greenwood, the drummer. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, as I, think I would listen to that. I have no idea. I, my, I mean, like, I, 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 despite writing this book and I, uh, like my, I still follow new music until like, I think 2014. Whenever <laughs> Churches came out, that was the last new thing I listened to. Yeah. Just like so everything now, I, I finally became, you know, the, old man from the simpsons uh mm-hmm. who who used to know what's it and now i don't know what it is they, <laughs> and it'll one day happen to people younger than me yes yeah it'll yeah. happen to you <laughs> <laughs> i but I, I i got a lot of road uh behind me before i became r- truly uncool and yeah. my response was let me find the even uncooler music and <laughs> <laughs> discover and explain why it is so good. You know, that's that's not a bad way to just like relatively raise your credit of just beca- becoming the coolest guy in the uh, previously most uncool crowd. So here's my thing that I want to lead out on is like one of the m- most and you kind of we kind of covered on this earlier about like the traditions that prog rock guys and like uh, especially like the European traditions we're leaning into. But one of the overarching questions that I had reading this book was was prog rock progressive or was it backwards looking because so much of what was prog was so very explicitly looking into previous traditions and especially like classical music like literally directly quoting music that was made 200 400 years ago and just re-quoting that with a rock musical idiom Mm -hmm. is that progressive in any way or was this perhaps the most reactionary of rock musics uh that's a that's a good question because i i I, there were different types of music that i rope into this i think uh certainly the the bands that were just borrowing classical music and reinterpreting it in rock forms yes that's like by definition not original um uh, uh, but then if you if you go there you have to say well you know john coltrane interpreting <laughs> interpreting my favorite things also not original like you're allowed yeah. to yeah. cover stuff and find new things and make it so i do think they're in, in that was innovative in one way innovative in a different way where i mean soft machine and magma and the bands that were more interested and bold about breaking away completely from rock uh robert wyatt who i spent some time with in the book that is music that is just like so completely out of out of any space and time like magma literally point. inventing their own language oh yeah i mean you listen to magma in 2019 if you like you can kind of figure out it's old but you would not necessarily guess it is from the mid-1970s uh and th- that stuff uh 
that stuff I think was was truly innovative, remains really innovative, remains unlike anything else. And that was people making music that had never been done before. Uh, so it was. I mean, I, I do think there's more invention in progressive rock than there is in almost uh, any other any other progressive rock. So much of it really is based on people. You know, most most appreciation of music, most stuff that's popular is people recognizing some some chords and some sequences they like. You know, that we <laughs> we boil down. We, we, like, there's a science the the Swedes have perfected. Of how you make, <laughs> You're right. That like, it has songs. So anytime people are like, well, we could do that, or we could try something that is that is threatening and weird and atonal, or uh, or that borrows classical music forms that maybe like made audiences excited in 1890, but let's see what happens. I do think that was inventive. Um, It becomes pretentious when people are repeating themselves or when people in order to not repeat themselves, just like go way overboard. But, uh, but no, the the first of the stuff, I mean, I listened to even the first yes album where they have not figured out the entire sound. It's the the entire band's not the band that we know is not entirely there yet. Mm. Um, but listening to Beyond and Before, where the bass is being basically being played um, through through a guitar amp, uh, this is kind of a Chris Squire thing. Right? <laughs> yeah, yes. he allowed himself to be the loudest person on every track. Uh, they're cover- they're this is a period where they're uh, covering show tunes and <laughs> turning them into into rock songs. Like they were they were building and going far beyond the kind of mod and beat music that that they came out of. And so, yeah, I think that was that that was inventive and like deserves a lot of respect. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a that's a great answer to that. And it's interesting that these two things are built like very, very much simultaneously where you'll have, you know, I think ELP is the best example of this. Where on the same album. You'll have like expansive original rock idiom pushing compositions that are right next to just like big covers of like Jerusalem, English folk songs or whatever, you know, where they're like mm-hmm. kind of both very obviously just reaching back and being like, well, we'll just do that in a rock way and Mm -hmm. that'll be like our song. And then also on the other side of the album is like, and then here's 25 minutes of like completely new interpolation of, of and technological innovation of, of Moog noodles of the entirety of the last, like (laughs) what we understand to be 400 years of music history, aesthetic noodling. So it's, I mean, it, it, just like all these things, it's like the it's a land of contrast. It's it's the the same as it same as it ever was, and ever then was. an entirely new thing that ne- that was never before, never was again. You know, I was the first okay. band to play uh, Bach for the Rock Kids. <laughs> Everyone thought I was crazy. We, we all, all know, know now. now. That was last episode. <laughs> uh, no, I yeah, I'm glad I could spend like a little bit of a role in excavating it. Like he. There, I know that. So when the book came out too, and I only bring this up, and I think it could be could be about myself, and I can make whatever I wanted. I know there's some people who write about this music, and were annoyed that it did not go a little bit further in challenging the main narrative of of this. I didn't mean to at all. I just I really wanted to write uh, a story that in which some musician, some bands that just you know sold more and shape shape more minds and had bigger concerts and and changed more culture, they're bigger characters. But the uh, the definition of progressive rock I, I kind of stick to in the book yeah. uh, mm-hmm. is one. I think there are new definitions or more stuff being uh, being brought in. And there's this website interviews um, this, uh, where there there are long, very long form interviews with musicians who I think are, are more inventive than some I write in the book. I'm happy to include them, but I really just want to give the credit to these people who were not just weird and inventive, but were enormous 
and like filled the role that that like now a a only a pop band that play fairly predictable music would yeah. in in the culture. So I, I was like, this is a great moment. We all should. We don't need to. Re, we don't necessarily going to need to go back to it. We we'll need to relive it. But we need to appreciate it. I'm. It does make me wonder if there will ever be a time in which there is like a pop musician, you know, like a Haley Steinfeld that does like 25 minute da- dance tracks that, you know, <laughs> heck quote weird, uh, you know, traditional music for Gregorian and, chanting or like, something, have <laughs> alternative instruments and like go beyond, you know, four, four build drop, build drop. Things. All these things go in waves. So yeah, there's going to, there's going to be another progressive, yeah, rock band. My my hot take is that Vampire Weekend are a prog band. <laughs> I can't even <laughs> say that. Like, I don't know. I don't fight, fight me, <laughs> um, Dave. Where should people start with prog rock? Uh, the nice thing about this genre is that the the most famous albums from it kind of are the best. Having, having listened to hundreds of them, uh, I found gems. But the stuff that really will make you th- like decide whether you like it or not are uh, the King, first King Crimson album and the Court of the Crimson King. Uh, especially five minutes into that, you've heard them piece together three different genres. Uh, and so if you're into that, you're, you're going to know pretty quickly. Uh, yes is fragile. I would add that too. Uh, I would say Genesis uh, selling England by the pound. Uh, I would. That I was would, one that I was actually listening to for the for one of the first times the other day. And it, oh, there's so much good stuff on that album. And I had not really sat down with selling England by the pound before. Oh, yeah. Especially once you, you kind of get to the rock part of <laughs> Dance of the Middle at Night. Mm-hmm. Uh I think whips as hard as about anything else. I'd say, and like to, to broaden it out a little bit, I would say uh, Soft Machine Third. If if you want, if you, that will see like test your limits of if you want the more uh, disconnected from normal song forms, you just want to hear musicians explore, exploring and and uh, that will do it for you. Uh, but then yeah, Thick as a Brick, which is uh, enormous and ambitious uh, record that uh, also has like really bite-sized melodies. So you could listen to it. It does not feel like you are being bludgeoned for 40 minutes. It just feels like a a ton of songs. Uh, And I I didn't mention any Yes albums in there. Like the obvious one is Fragile. That that got me in. I guess I only avoided it in the first conversation because that's the one that that started me. Mm -hmm. But that gives you like, first track is going to give you roundabout. It has what they only did for that one album, but it's kind of a, a nice trick where each member of the band gets like 90 seconds to show off yeah. in between each of the, each of the hit songs. Although I, w- uh, and, I would say yeah. roundabout's the easy one, but I would say that if you want to go for the one, the prog track that just slays the most heart of the heart of the sunrise yeah. is the one that I go for on, on fragile. And the other the thing heart, that I would the sunrise is incredible. Yeah. The other thing I would say to just agree with uh, thick as a brick as an entry point is that the thing about thick as a brick is that it's kind of a joke, you know, it's, it's, they're Spooky. kind of like, as you say in the book, they're kind of like taking the piss out of the whole thing at the time. They they want to be a little goofy and like, especially in the lyrics, make fun of like the portentousness of some of this sometimes. So if you have like a sense of humor, I think Thick as a Brick is a good one to start at because it, it, it has some silliness to mm. it. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up last because it's not like these guys did something to their to their minds where they only they th- they took all this deadly seriously. These were at the mm-hmm. at the root of it, like guys in their teens and twenties who s- could see the humor <laughs> in what they were doing. Yes, and some of them, like it did show up on the record, and some of them, in Ian Anderson's case, when I talked to him, he absolutely knew what he was doing. He thought it like the the pump was hilarious and wanted to have fun with it. So 
I think Fix It Works is a good way to show that side of it, that you're you're not signing up for the, for people writing 30-minute songs about fairies, whatever your your, stere- your stereotypes are. Mm-hmm. You're writing songs by people who are like, isn't this weird what we're doing? Yeah. <laughs> like, they're, they're, aware. they're aware. Yeah, it's goofy, but it's also intense and fun and heavily musical and like something that you've never heard before anywhere else. No, totally. I think that's about it. Yeah. Molly, do you have any anything else? Uh, ju- justice for Asia or, <laughs> or, or not? <laughs> I don't know. Asia. I don't Asia know how you feel good, about that. Asia, I, I really enjoyed writing the Asia section of the book. If you if you if anyone gets to it, <laughs> it's uh, like the the fact that they thought again. Anytime a studio is like, you know, just swap this guy out. Let's see what happens. Yeah. And they're like, well, we can't get John Wetton, but we have Greg Lake. That's the same thing. I <laughs> can play live, no rehearsing. <laughs> well, it's funny because we were because uh, Molly was just talking about that before we got on, and we put on some Asia or we put on Heat of the Moment because we're trying like. You're trying to remember, oh, what's the big Asia song? Heat of yeah. the moment. And as soon as we put it on, I was like, oh, this is this is one measure six four, one measure four four time until it goes <laughs> into the first verse, and then it does two four four measures, and then goes into re- so it's like all those bands that even persisted in the '80s and became like quote, quote unquote cheesy hard rock bands. The DNA like, is still there. Yeah, they did not they did not make it easy for us to to count yeah. out those measures. God bless them. Yes. Well, then let's move confidently into the end of this episode. Dave, thank you so much for coming on. Yes, thank you for thank you. pulling Prague Rock out of the 70s and giving it another look for a, a, a new era. Uh, I thought that this was a, a very interesting, very thorough read and you know made me really appreciate this uh, uh, genre yeah. again. And again, just like give, gave me an excuse and a context to listen to all these songs. Uh, and they, they, they own. But anything else that you would like to, uh, to plug, Dave? Uh, yeah, read the trailer, which is the political newsletter I write, the Washington Post. Like, read the Washington Post in general, because uh, I, I have a nice corner of it where I write about campaigns, but there's there's more to it. And uh, I'll just do do that. I mean, anything else, you know, you have to discover on your own. But uh, <laughs> I, 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 would, I would add to this maybe some of the books I use as references in, in this one, uh, like Rocking the Classics, are a lot of fun. And a book that I've I've gotten a lot of enjoyment out, um, for, especially there were just times in the writing process where I need to reset my own mind by listening to something very different. There's a book called Lost in the Grooves that came out, I want to say 10 years ago, maybe more than that, that is just writers describing obscure music they enjoyed. Now, having recommended this, I'm going to discover it's like 20 years out of print or something. <laughs> I hope it is. Uh, but uh, if you can find a copy... Uh, I, I will sometimes just go down the rabbit hole in that book, open something up, find, oh, yeah, it's, oh, it's like 40 bucks used. You <laughs> well, we'll no, wreck it. Seven, seven used. You can do that. Um, oh, yeah. That's easy. Yeah. 15 years old. Jeez, oh, I'm old now. Uh, <laughs> that uh, That is one of, uh, there's, finally, there's, there's a book that if you are really, really into this, you want like the advanced course, there's a book just called Mellotron that is, as it sounds, <laughs> nothing but long interviews with musicians who use Mellotrons. And I swear to God, that book I had more fun with uh, when I was, sometimes I'd be I'd hit up, hit kind of a wall in my own writing and just go back to the, the intensity with which these musicians uh, talk about the Mellotron and the role it played in their work. This is like a rage doorstop book about one instrument. Uh, so, <laughs> we should probably so, yeah, cover this on our podcast. Read about Mellotrons, read about uh, classical music theory, and and then like read about stuff that's nothing like this. Yeah. Uh, one day when I make it, I will own a Mellotron. How much does a Mellotron go for these days? Good question. 
Probably. Uh, if you were like trying to, I mean, with most instruments, like I know people who bought theremins. I own, uh, I own a theremin. Dave. Chris has a theremin. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you can, like, get the stuff and assemble them. I think you can get, like... 3000 Classic Mellotron for, like, maybe $300, like the price of a, of a really nice turntable. Uh. And you want to go up a little higher, maybe $1,500. But, like, uh, you can buy Moogs. You can buy the, the Mini Moogs. Like, uh, it's it's honestly, like, one point when I, I um, really go through midlife crisis. I've gone through, like, a couple of the small ones. I'm absolutely going to get like a mini Moog and just mess around with it. Um, a Moog, so Militron, I price all this stuff out. I'm also a synth nerd. Uh, I, I'm, I'm mostly just limited by the literal uh, table space in our apartment yes. that I cannot buy any more synthesizers because there's no place to put them. But when you write your why I'm leaving New York essay, that's going to be why. Yeah, more synthesizer like, space. Good, goodbye to all that. Yes. Yeah. Hello to my patch cables. Goodbye to all that. Uh. <laughs> all right. Well, let's uh, let's... Let's say goodbye to the people. Molly, do you have anything to plug? Uh, uh, nothing in particular. You can follow me at Miss Molly Mary. Recently broke a thousand followers, guys. We I'm got officially her there. we got you got me there, and now I'm not underrated. I think I'm simply rated. Rated? Yeah. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at say what again. I now have like eleven thousand followers, which means I am definitely overrated. Mm. Uh, so yes, you tweet in moderation though, so that's fine. Yes, okay, well maybe that's true. But you can follow us to collectively together on Twitter. We're at and IntroPod uh, on Twitter. Dave, what, what's your handle again? Just at Dave Weigel. Just just at Dave Weigel. Follow um, Dave too. He's got great. Yeah, all the all the best political reporting intakes mm-hmm. and and occasionally yeah. music jokes. Sometimes they get a little bit pretentious, but that's pro- I blame the music I They'd listen like, to. Yeah. <laughs> uh yeah you're you're when whenever you're you're pretentious you're just uh tour, touring with the orchestra we can call it uh <laughs> but second 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 flute second flute in the uh, LPs band but we're on twitter at and intro pod you can follow us there you can send us an email at and introducing pod at gmail.com at some point we're going to get a critical mass of emails and do a mailbag episode. That'll be coming up soon. Yeah. Our SoundCloud is as always at soundcloud.com slash and dash intro dash pod. And remember to subscribe to us on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a review rate, subscribe review. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. talk about how, uh, our, you know, the six seg, the six section of our second movement, lagged a little bit but when we really kicked into 6-4 time and the guitar solo hit as the tape loops came in that that's when it really started to cook you know talk about that kind of stuff in the comments uh, but until then we'll be back in another two weeks with another story of music, writing May- mayhem history and mayhem mellotrons. and melotrons this has been an introducing <laughs> <laughs>